This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I felt a little cheated in my teaching career because I never got to teach world history. You get to teach world history? Uh-uh. And you, I mean, you, I learned so much content teaching courses, right? Like right. when I taught them, that's when I felt like I learned a lot. And world history seems kind of important. It's interesting. It's yeah. fascinating. It's so big. And then you only have so much time to, to do it. But oh man, it's fun. So here's my question for you. Yeah. What do you feel like students are supposed to take away from world history, right? Like social studies is supposed to prepare them to be citizens. What are they supposed to take away from world history towards their citizenship? Well, that's interesting. So <laughs> we're kind of like in this increasingly global interconnected world. And so it really makes sense to understand how things ended up the way they are and to kind of like look for where fault lines are in society, like how, like what shaped different countries or different cultures. That being said, like it's obviously there's so much stuff, so you can only cover so much. And also I feel like particularly in our, in Massachusetts at least, our world history is very much a Western civilization class that's kind of like shoehorned into this world history. And so it's not a total, it needs work. It needs some loving. Well, I also wonder about, like, even when I think, so I'll use U.S. history as an example, right? I, I'm a lot more familiar with U.S. history. Yeah. But understanding U.S. history from a few hundred years ago is also still very different from today, although there's some continuity in right, some right. aspects of our history that continues. But there's also, like, real differences. So if students, you know, for example, learn about ancient Egypt, how prepared are they to understand people who lived in Egypt or are um, of Egypt of Egypt nationality uh, uh, who live around the world like are they prepared does that prepare them for that do we do we catch up on Egypt or do we just leave it in Egypt? I think it's left I think yeah you might pick it up in the Suez crisis unfortunately but you might ignore and not that you should I mean again I don't think you should by any means but I feel like that probably is uh, oftentimes what happens when I was when I was uh, applying for a job, like I had an interview, and the people were like, "Hey, if you could create a course, like create an elective, what would you do?" And I was like, "What about like a hitchhiking through the world?" So I obviously was reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy a lot, and so I was like, "Let's do that to the world. Like, what do you need to know to kind of fit in to order, you know, a cup of coffee or, or whatever? Like, what do you need to know to kind of like hang out there?" what type of people are going to be there. I was really excited about this idea. They apparently were not. I did not get the, uh, I did not get the job. I feel like, did you apply for this job and create your Twitter handle like right around the same time? No, no, no. Oh God. You no. just, because it, it's, it's a hitchhiker's guide. It's a hitchhiker's yeah. guide. You know, no, it's, it's kind yeah. of like a longstanding. I have 42 engraved in the back of my ring. Every, when I was with the nonprofit world, every desk that I ever sat at and it was a nonprofit. So we moved around a lot, had a, a, a don't panic sign. And that remained there until I actually until a year after I left. Apparently, uh, no, this is a long-standing thing. Well, I think, but I think your course sounds really interesting. I mean, to really? me, what it sounds 
Yeah, I, I was like so excited. I got so jazzed and I got more jazzed. And I, yeah, I. You shouldn't be too excited because no one in their right mind is going to give me like hiring responsibilities ever. So I can't hire you for this position. No, but this was a good 10, 12 years ago. I think I think what you're talking about is is people potentially being cosmopolitan citizens, right? Which is this idea of citizens who have kind of the fluency, know-how, the you know interest in understanding people different from them, mm-hmm. learning languages. You know, people who really can you know interact in meaningful, mutually beneficial ways with people around the world, and that's a real skill. See, your class is needed. Yeah. Oh, if only. If only. Maybe there's some other ways to learn about the world besides your class. Hopefully there is. Besides my class that never came out. I think at this point we should probably bring someone in who has some ideas about this, particularly looking at the younger set of people, the children. And someone who's actually implemented their ideas, not just talk. Not just, not just job interview talk that got rejected. <laughs> I feel so bad. And we would love to welcome into the podcast someone who's really done the work. Just kidding, Michael. I really appreciate your idea. Oh, thanks. And we'd like to welcome in Heidi Torres. Welcome. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. Dr. Torres, can you tell us a little bit about your background? As Michael would say, who is Heidi Torres? Okay, so I am an assistant professor of elementary education at the University of Oklahoma. Mm. Yeah, I know, Dan, loving loving the Oklahoma. <laughs> I, got, I got three degrees there. I'm like legally obligated to cheer just based on tuition I paid. <laughs> well, before I was here, I taught elementary education for 16 years, both in Texas and Indiana. Um, and then I went and got my graduate degree at Indiana University in curriculum and instruction, focusing primarily on elementary social studies and children's literature. But I also have an earlier degree in uh, general and special education and Middle Eastern studies. So my own personal passion is very much um, world cultures. I lived abroad as a child. Um, I have a very multicultural family, some of whom involve other people from other countries that my family has intermarried with. So I have a very strong passion for connecting with people from other countries and other cultures. What were some of the countries that you, you grew up in? Several in Europe and some in South America. So there's quite a few. <laughs> so, so you would be the know-it-all in Michael's class. I hope not. Because <laughs> one of the things like, I'm thinking about Michael's class, I'd want to be in there and learn more stuff. I mean, I'd want to be in there and learn more stuff too. You guys could co-teach it. This would be great. Let's make this happen. Um, we're going to open up a GoFundMe to make this class happen. Look for that to come out on our Twitter feed soon. Love it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, your teaching experiences and background? Yeah, so I started out in special education in San Antonio. And as you can imagine, in San Antonio, you're going to have a more uh, diverse group of people, some of whom had first-generation parents who had immigrated. And um, so, you know, it was it was a nice, diverse group of people. And then I moved to northern Indiana, and that was not so much. And so there was a lot of where, where are the diverse people? Mm-hmm. And so... 
the way that I had to think about my teaching and in a classroom was these are students, some of whom will not probably leave the state, or if they do, it'll only be to go 12 miles north to Michigan, and that's about it. So if I want them to have opportunities to be able to learn about other countries and other places, I will have to bring that to them. And so that became very much a central part of my teaching. And what's really interesting is the things that happen as a teacher um, eventually became the passion that I had as a graduate student, and that became actually my dissertation topic. And I carry those students with me. Um, you know, they're, my dissertation is dedicated to those third grade students that really got me going and thinking about how we can bring other cultures to children who may not have access except for what we can do in a classroom. That was your radioactive spider bite. It was my ra- actually. Um, I know that people who are going to look at the uh, listen to this aren't going to be able to see this, but I can show y'all. I still have a picture of this group oh. of students. Oh, this is cool. They asked me to start a geography and culture club after school. And so for two years, we had a geography and culture club where we would travel to all these different countries. We had experiences with people in our community who are from different places. One gentleman who is a professor at a local college was from Finland. He invited all the children over to his house for the sauna or the sauna, as we say, the sauna. Um, We had parents from Tanzania and from India who came to share because we, we had all the diverse people that I could find, I brought them to the classroom. That's really cool. I mean, and I've really, I've, I've tried to do that this semester with my class. I just thought about how much we can just learn being with other people who can share their experiences. And these are people in our community who have a different set of experiences. I'm excited in a couple of weeks where we're inviting in, I'm inviting in one of my colleagues in the department and then a Latinx disability activist in our community. And we're going to talk about accessibility and mapping. I'll give you a report back on how it goes, but I've been trying to do that more. I just talk to people. I'm like, would you like to come visit with our class? And we just talk about how we can share and learn from each other and the advice they can give. But it seems like you faced a problem that was really reminds me. It's the same problem that Jane Elliott was facing in not Indiana, but right next door over in Iowa, right, where she said, my kids don't know, you know, about what it's like to be black in in the United States. And they live in this very monolithic white community. So I'm going to do this brown eyed, blue eye simulation experience. Now, maybe you shouldn't do it the same way she did it. I would not. But like it's it's an obvious problem that some teachers are thinking about in our highly segregated schools and communities. How are we ensuring that students and um, have the opportunities to grow as citizens who experience different cultures and are able to ensure they're not xenophobic and they fight against xenophobia and they're anti-racist? I mean, that seems so important. It is. It's absolutely essential. I think part of what we see in our I don't know if I can even call it discourse, <laughs> but um, our, our um, popular and political culture um, is the implications of what happens when we don't learn that. And when we don't think about how important intercultural competence and engagement, cross-cultural engagement is and how we effectively do that, we have the things that we're seeing. You know, we have the bubble where people stay in their echo chamber, people who are even afraid to cross-culturally engage, let alone having skills or having a sense of how to go about it. And, you know, relegating all of that kind of responsibility to one world history class, which is supposed to be world history, (laughs) um, or maybe a a world geography class in seventh grade is just, in my eyes, unacceptable, especially thinking about the pluralistic society in which we live. And then the global interdependence that um, Michael mentioned earlier. 
Well, fortunately, you're doing this work. And so we really appreciate your work in the field. And not only are you doing this work in your teaching, your day-to-day life, but you wrote an article that got published in Theory and Research and Social Education. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. So the article is titled, They Have Their Own Way and You Should Respect That, Investigating the Outcomes of Elementary World Cultures Curriculum. And this was published in the fourth issue in 2019. Um, And we'll have that linked in our show notes. Can you tell us about this research? Okay, so this was the largest piece of research that I've gotten to do in in uh, this kind of work. So basically, like I told you, my passion was kind of ignited by these students that I showed you the picture of and um, doing that work and just feeling as a teacher that there was something meaningful and really important, but it was anecdotal. You know, I, I just feel like this is a thing that should be good. And, and I believe in it because of my own experiences. And so I thought, you know, it'd be really good to actually do a study about this. And so what I did was I knew some teachers who worked in a very small rural town in a Midwestern state. And my relationship with them, they said, sure, you can come and teach about other cultures in our classroom. And so what I did is I spent 11 weeks out of a semester with two third grade classrooms, small classrooms, because it was a small rural school. And it was with children who basically have little or no exposure to other cultures. And when I say other cultures, I am talking right now more specifically about world cultures outside of the United States, because how that manifest itself and how it looks in the United States is different from when we are talking about the culture outside in a different nation state. So um, people who had children who had little or no exposure to those cultures and basically what happens when they have an opportunity to have a sustained curriculum that's theoretically grounded, that's about world cultures and also have the opportunity to actually directly engage and interact with people from those other cultures. So I spent that semester with amazing eight and nine-year-olds and watched what happened. And I had I didn't walk in with any particular idea of, okay, this is what I think is going to happen. It was, let's see what happens. And what happened kind of blew me away. The kids are amazing. And it was very exciting to see the kinds of things that happened. And this uh, article that I wrote is one example from a very rich data set that I'm still working through other pieces because there's so much you can't write it in one article. Do you want to tell us what the curriculum was first, and then we can discuss the findings? So the curriculum was, I developed it just in doing a lot of reading in uh, cultural cognition and looking at, well, it's actually societal cognition more broadly, and then thinking about how do children make sense of cultures, as well as a lot from um, social studies, global education, the ideas of what skills and dispositions and uh, work do we need to do to help people develop these kind of intercultural competencies and ideas about how to relate to people from other cultures. So after doing that, I created this curriculum that basically started with some introductory ideas about just culture. Like, what is it? (laughs) What does that mean? Got some really cute answers. Like one of them was, oh, you know, it's like that thing that's like a statue you make. And I was like, um, no, it's not a sculpture. It's, it's culture. And so there was, it was really cute. It was really interesting, but just um, starting with helping them even understand what is the concept of culture. And from that, digging into the idea of what is the difference between surface cultures, the things that we see, and the more internal culture, which are those beliefs and values and behavior norms and those things that underlie the surface culture. So just kind of giving them a general introduction, having them get a sense of what 
the lay of the world is, you know, giving them maps and giving them understandings of where these things are located, you know, what is a country, what is a continent, how do these go together, thinking about cultural uh, universals and seeing how we have things that are the same and different based on where we are and how we grow up. And then we kind of dug into some large, or I guess I would say large, big ideas related to culture. So the first one was the idea that culture is really influenced by the geography and the history of the place where we are. So that was one big idea. Another big idea was the idea of stereotyping. Another big idea was respecting people who have different religions and worldviews. And then the final one was thinking about what is bias and how people have bias. So those were these big ideas. And what we did was we had lessons about each of those and different activities that we did. But then those then became, those then became, uh, I guess I would say, real by their interactions with people from multiple countries. So as we got started, I had a lot, I was very blessed. I have a lot of colleagues who were from different countries who were like, yeah, I'll come talk about my country and teach about my culture. And um, so when I say culture, again, this is a very large anthropological complex idea and there's a lot of different constructs. Um, and so I'm not going to spend the whole time because <laughs> I'm going to spend the entire visions of education talking about just what is culture. But um, for the way I wanted to say it is, we can do that. <laughs> that's another podcast. Culture pod. Yeah, Why? culture. But when I'm saying it, I mean just kind of the the culture that is generally situated in thinking about a more national culture that is associated with a nation state, and then within there there are microcultures and so forth. But that's kind of how how we explain or explain to the children to get started because that's one of the more easy ideas about culture or the more easy forms of culture for them to start before you get to more complicated transnational culture and such. So what we did is I gave them a list of all these different um, cultures that we could study and the children then went and did research and they chose four cultures that they wanted to learn about. And then what we did was these big ideas were exemplified by these different cultures that we got to inter interact with and engage with. So, for example, when we talked about stereotyping, we had three different colleagues who came from Tanzania, from Egypt and from Nigeria. And the theme was stereotypes. And I first read them a, a children's book called Africa is Not a Country. And then the panel came and they talked with the children and talked about how their countries were different and um, just really disrupted a lot of different stereotypes the children had about Africa. And then we had a full about a, a an afternoon that we spent with two women from, from South Sudan. And so they came and, and they also shared about their culture. And one of the things that was really powerful about all of this is that I worked with my colleagues who were insiders and basically said, what do you think eight and nine-year-olds should know about your culture? And how do we think that we should be sharing this? And so they came with their knowledge as an insider and in how they wanted to share these things. And then I came with my pedagogical knowledge and together we worked to create these lessons. And then they would come on these special Fridays and spend time with the children, just engaging and interacting and doing all different kinds of activities. And every single time that somebody came, it was a little bit different because of their personalities because of what they wanted to share, how they wanted to share. But the whole goal was to just disrupt these ideas of stereotypes, but also engaging so the children got a sense of who people really were across these cultures. And I think that was probably the most powerful part of it. And then at the end, the children were allowed to choose whatever they wanted to, to explain their ideas 
about what they had learned, and it could be any kind of um, project that they wanted to do. And so one child chose to write a book, and her book was called Africa is Not a Country. And then she wrote this whole book about all these different things that people should know about Africa and about different people in Africa. Another group wrote a play. She's going to get sued for copyright there. (laughs) I know. Well, the pictures and all the words were all different. It was just the title. (laughs) Publishers, they'll come after. Yeah, some people did, did plays. Some people did posters and they were able to pick whatever it was they wanted. So we got a wide variety of different ways that they shared their knowledge. And then a number of the cultural consultants came back and they basically presented it to them. So that was, it was really powerful. So your the title is they have their own way and you should respect that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's a quote from one of the students. The way that I really like to do research in my findings is I think that children have a lot to say and they have a lot to say about what they know, what they understand, and they have a right to share what they know and understand about their own learning. And we need to listen more. And so I really try to privilege their voices. And so when we were talking in the process of our lessons, in interviews that I had with the students, just in conversations, they had a lot of powerful things to say. And when I talked to this particular child about, you know, things that she learned and what she thought was important for people to know, that was one of the things that she said is that, and it was their way of um, understanding that people have different perspectives and they aren't all universally the same and that we need to learn to respect how people think and do and believe differently from other cultures. So were were those some of the main findings? I'm guessing part of our findings here is that the students really grew in their kind of understanding of cross cultures and both in their dispositions towards people who are different from them. So is is that kind of what our main takeaways and and what would you tell teachers who are especially working at the elementary level about, about what advice you'd have for, for them to do this kind of work? First of all, I think one thing that's really important is do not underestimate what children can understand and what they're going to ask you and what they want to know and how much they observe. One of the things that I've had people say is, oh, this is too hard for little kids. This, you know, this is um, too complicated. It's too abstract. But um, I'll give you an example. There was a student in our class who they were possibly thinking they were going to be... um, testing her for special needs for disability. And so I think sometimes I felt like um, there was a little bit of, oh, you know, she can't do these things. And she at one day raises her hand and she says, so we were talking about bias. She goes, is there ever good bias? You're like, that is a seriously philosophically, you know, deep question. And I tell you about the myth of objectivity, child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and I told her, you know what, that is a great question that grownups also try to think about a lot. I said, I'm going to go talk to somebody. So I went and talked to an ed philosopher. And then what he said, I kind of translated into little eight year old language. But it was awesome, because even it took me a couple of days, I'd come back, the kids are like, did you find out about that thing? Did you find out? I mean, they want to know. So what is the answer? Oh, gosh, I would have to go back and look at what the whole thing was because it was really complicated. But kind of the short version was that sometimes bias is helpful in making sense of certain things. Like, for example, in, in spaces where there can be danger, 
but that you always have to be open to recognize that it would that there is problems with it and that it can be wrong. I think it was it was more or less something like that. So you know, if like I'm in the woods and I see a snake, my bias is that snake is trying to kill me. It could be dangerous. It could bite you. It could be poisonous. Yes. Actually, I've struggled with this. Not the snake part, but the the you know like we all carry our perspectives with us. I guess I, I differentiate really as perspective different than bias, right? And we even know whether it's positive or negative. I don't know. Anyway, so I've I've thought about that a lot, thinking about that. You know, we we carry our histories with us, as you've said, like so much that that deeper level culture we have is who we are. We can't even separate that from the way we see the world. So in a sense, we always carry our biases with us. And I think it's given it's taken on such a negative word that biases are bad. But I think when we recognize our bias, it actually helps us see why we see things the way we do, right? And recognize, I don't know. Anyway, that's the way I've thought of it. So that may be different and not nearly as good as the philosopher (laughs) explanation. Well, and he also did talk about the fact that we do all carry our biases. I mean, everybody has them. And this was what was interesting. One of the kids at the end of the whole thing, he's like, there is, I love it. He's like, there is not nobody that doesn't have bias. Everybody's got bias. And then they talked about, one of the children talked about how he recognized he had bias and how during the middle of this um, thing, he had been doing things that he thought was not very nice. And then he realized it and he decided that he needed to change that. And he hoped that he could help other people change it. And he would just need to learn more so he could keep changing his. And I'm like, who is this kid? Oh my gosh, he's nine. And that's he is the philosopher we all were seeking. He's going to be, I think. <laughs> he said a lot of really amazing, intense things. <laughs> so it could be. We were just doing a book club today on uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, which we, yeah. we read together. Some of our faculty members read it together. And that was actually one of our kind of discussion points about with young kids, we often teach them not to, to think that they're not prejudiced and not be prejudiced. But what that actually does is it then teaches them not to recognize their own prejudice. And particularly, right. you know, in the U.S., if, that, if you're white, then you carry your prejudice with the idea that you're not biased. And so that actually can carry, you see your own way of seeing the world as just kind of a non-biased, normal way. And the culture kind of confirms that. And that can be really harmful because other people are left out of what's seen as normative. And so anyway, I, I think that's a really in deep, profound point. And we also can learn with kids is identifying how are we biased? What's our culture teach us that causes me to see another culture as, as you know, something very different than mine and maybe I, I don't understand it and to find a, a better way to kind of decenter our nine-year-old selves and, and learn from other people, which is what you did. Well, and I think the other thing that's important is, you know, you were talking about the world history class, and I was thinking about that earlier today. And, you know, sometimes we leave these conversations, as particularly about places outside the U.S., like till seventh grade. And you're like, wait a second, you know, we have in really seriously entrenched biases and ideas by that time. And we research indicates that kids that are, you know, two and three and four, especially in places of protracted conflict, they're already developing these biases and prejudice and they have stereotypes or at the minimum, they are already recognizes, recognizing differences between cultures. So we need to start talking about these things very early on. They already are recognizing them. So waiting till seventh grade to go, okay, now we're going to talk about, you know, geography about the world is a, a little late. I mean, we can do things, but if we start earlier, we have less that we have to peel away. And you can see that by the conversation that some of these kids had when they were 
eight and nine year olds. Plus, there's also research that indicates that kids around that age, a little bit older, are more open to learning about other cultures and people who are different from themselves. So why are we waiting so long? We need to be talking about these things very early on. It's almost as if we need a course where they can hitchhike across the world. <laughs> I feel like that would be a pitch to the principals. But it would have to be for elementary school kids. And I don't really know if they're going to go out for coffee. I know. I was thinking, I actually was thinking about that the whole episode, that that's the reason it got rejected. They loved the course, but they didn't like the coffee, the caffeinating child part of it. Oh. It's funny you said that because the club that I made, we used to call it trekkers or globe trekkers. And we would, you know, trek around the world in these imaginary ways to get to know these different cultures. And they all made their little passports and stuff to go these different places. See, that's, oh. Yeah. So there you go. So maybe it can be an after-school club instead of uh, a classroom. And then eventually it becomes a class because they see it so awesome that they turn it into a curricular piece. All right. got to get my high school students in it. There you go. <laughs> you just hadn't said the coffee part. I know. Maybe that was it. Oh, you school in Massachusetts that did not hire me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what advice do you have for teachers who want to learn from these kind of intercultural experiences you've created for your students? I think one of the things that happens right away is an idea of, I can't do this because when we talk about go out in the community and find people that, you know, or, or, you know, work with your parents or whatever. Some people have those kind of resources, but what happens when you are the person who is from this extremely rural place that you have a monoculture of one sort or another, what do you do then? And so one of the things that I also am really passionate about is thinking about this as much as possible, direct contact, having these experiences, creating these experiences. But I think another one is um, the power of children's literature that people don't always consider. And um, so I've been doing some other things related to um, inter intergroup contact theory with, uh, you know, uh, Allport and the Pettigrew-Trop and this idea of um, when you are, when you are connecting with people from other cultures within certain experiences, then that, that reduces prejudice. So that talks about direct contact, but there's now more still, I'd say it's still pretty in a pretty early stage, but more there's these ideas of what they call extended contact effect. And the idea is that in seeing stories and in seeing texts where you can see positive cross-cultural engagement and friendships, that that also has the potential to reduce bias and prejudice. And that's where I think there's some real promise and potential with children's literature. So using international children's literature, global children's literature, literature that shows children there are other ways of being in other places and other um, ways of thinking and being in the world, I think is a another possibility for teachers who may not have direct contact or may have more struggles in trying to find ways to engage with those experiences more directly. I think children's literature does have a great uh, amount of potential. And also when there's, you know, teachers who say, well, I can't make a curriculum like this. I think a lot of these ideas that we're talking about are the kind that you would also talk about when you're creating your own classroom community. Maybe there isn't international diversity or maybe there isn't racial or ethnic diversity, but every town 
every place has some forms of diversity. And so you have to think about how you negotiate those in your classroom. You can teach some of these things through that. And you can teach some of these things by getting good children's literature to start talking about those conversations. So even if you're like, oh, I'm in a place where I am highly policed in my curriculum, I can only do these certain small things. You can read a book aloud 20 minutes a day. Or you can um, have your children have exposure to all of these different books in your classroom library. And so if you can get the books, even if you have to get them from interlibrary loan, in most places have do have access to at least interlibrary loan, or even YouTube where people are reading books. If you really can't even get the books, you can have them look at the books. That's That's not optimal, but that's better than nothing. So I think I want to encourage teachers that there are ways to do this, even if it seems difficult or even if it seems like oh I can't do that thing that she did there are still ways to take those ideas and put them in other places in their curriculum and in their classroom even in a monoculture place I like it thank you I want to take your class and Michael's class well you can come over in the fall I will be teaching a graduate class on multicultural and international children's literature so come on down and you can join us I feel like they made a rule where I'm not allowed to come back and take more classes than you anymore. It's After like, you go through the three, you're, you're done. Three degrees. <laughs> they're just like, okay, Dan's kind of becoming a problem now. You need, you need to go. <laughs> move on. Well, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully people will move on to these ideas and move them into their classrooms. We really appreciated having you on today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank and you. good luck with your class, Michael. Oh, thanks. I think, I think it's a good one. <laughs> See, thank you so much. Now, Heidi Torres, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I'm terrible about media. <laughs> really, I just Google Scholar. You can Google it, I guess. I, I don't have a Twitter account. I know that's, that's like... No, shopping. it's okay. <laughs> we, can make, we can make our show notes the new place to find... There Heidi we go. work. So we will get some great stuff in the show notes that, that link to some of your great work. I would like that. Thank you. So thank you again so much for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online, in our show notes, and in other spaces. Thanks. We're all about sharing the learning of the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creating education, or you just want to chat, and we get it, we're here for you. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and that other place. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Vision of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and really anywhere you want us to be. Like you can ask your speaker, hey, speaker, play Vision of Education and we'll play. Actually, we should just say it. No. We should say, Alexa, play oh. Visions of Education. How many people is that going to go off on? And... You can ask Alexa to write us a five-star review, oh. and we will read it on the air. We'd also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School in the Zach University Seitz. of North Texas for his editing skills. Thank you, Zach. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.